today on The Filmpreneur, an in-depth conversation with Liz Manischel. Liz has written and directed two micro-budget features and is in the early stages of a third. She also manages Sundance's Creative Distribution Initiative, which is basically just a fancy way of saying that she knows way more about indie distribution than the rest of us put together. Anyhow, we cover a lot of good stuff in this conversation, including how Liz attracts big-name talent to her micro-budget projects, how she's booking her own theatrical run for her current feature, and some tips for successfully crowdfunding your films. So uh, yeah, let's get to it. Hey friend, welcome to Filmmaker Freedom. This is a show for ambitious indie filmmakers who want to make work they're proud of, build audiences, cut out the middlemen, and earn a damn good living selling directly to their fans. My name is Rob Hardy, and I'm a filmmaker and a marketing consultant who's worked with a number of brands and startups to help them connect with online audiences and grow their businesses. Now, in the solo episodes of this show, I like to share direct lessons that I've learned from that experience and help you build an audience and sell your films. But truth be told, my perspective is far from the only one. That's why I like to balance those shows out with long-form interviews with other entrepreneurial indie filmmakers. The goal is to share conversations that are really substantive, inspiring, and genuinely honest and transparent because there's just not enough transparency in the world of indie film, especially when it comes to the business side of things. And one last thing before we begin, I just want to thank my good friends over at Musicvine for sponsoring this show. Over the years, I've used just about every music licensing platform out there, and I can say without hesitation that Musicvine is at the very top of my list. The quality and uniqueness of the music are outstanding. The prices are reasonable, and the design and functionality of their website are second to none. It's just a pure pleasure to use. So if you're a discerning filmmaker who needs quality music, just go to musicvine.com and use the code FILMFREEDOM for 25% off your next order. All right, now let's get into today's interview. So like I mentioned before, Liz is pretty prolific when it comes to writing and directing micro-budget features. I actually found out about Liz a few years ago after her first feature, Bread and Butter, recouped its production budget, which is actually pretty rare, even in the micro-budget range. And she wrote a really good guest article for Movie Maker Magazine, just transparently sharing those numbers and the various revenue streams that helped them do that. And if you pay attention to like the indie film business landscape, you know just how little transparency there is and just how awesome it is when somebody comes out and shares those numbers. Anyhow, these days, Liz just finished up her second feature, which is called Speed of Life, and she's taking it around the festival circuit as we speak and hammering out the finer points on a pretty unique distribution deal. And the really fun thing is that she's planning out a DIY theatrical run that includes a David Bowie cover band. And don't worry, we cover all of this stuff in our conversation. And then finally, she's in the early stages of a new feature called Lady Parts. And it's honestly got one of the funnier crowdfunding pitch videos I've ever seen. And if you want to find that video, um, I'm going to have the links to all of these things in the show notes or the website version of this. So just check out the show notes. You will be able to watch that goodness as well. Anyhow, that's all I've got in terms of an intro for Liz. And we talk about so much good stuff during this conversation. And I really hope you enjoy it. So uh, yeah, here's my talk with Liz Manishill. The first question I have for you is something along the lines of what on earth compels you to be a filmmaker and a micro-budget filmmaker of all things, given that you probably know firsthand just what a tedious life <laughs> comes along with that choice? Um, I have some joke answers and some real answers, but part of it is that I know it's really hard to do this. And I take a lot of pride in saying that I've made two features because I know how difficult it is. So I think part of it is, is the brag, the bragging. Um, part of it is um, 
because I sit by and I watch a lot of my colleagues talk about making projects and I know that they will. This is not in any way um, to disparage their dreams, but um, it takes much longer, I think, when you work outside of the micro-budget space because you're waiting on a lot of players whose priority, whose first priority is not your project. Um, and it's stupid. I tell this story all the time, but when I was 16, I saw this movie and in the movie, the guy broke the fourth wall and looked right into the lens and it, and I'm not religious, but it felt like a cosmic moment. And I have been chasing it or listening to that stupid voice for the past 18 years. Um, so those are like the only reasons I can think of right now on this zoom call. Yeah. That seems like everybody has one of those one of those initial moments with a movie where they're just like, holy shit, I didn't know that you could like do that. I think so for me, it was um, the David Lynch version of The Elephant Man. Yeah. And that movie turned me into like a weepy puddle of man tears at the end. And I was like, what the hell just happened? How, how is this even possible? Um, and I was like, I want to do that to people. And, well, he's yeah. a fascinating case study, right? Because he, you, people just think he's a weirdo, but actually he's so beyond his, um, you know, form in terms of storytelling. Like when you look at straight story and an elephant man, you're like, oh, he's great at telling the narrative. Like he's yeah. wonderful. Exactly. But he, yeah, it just, it clearly doesn't interest him anymore. You know, mm-hmm. um, well, our dog is named Laura Palmer. So we are very big <sighs> David Lynch fans. That's awesome. <laughs> I love it. Our yeah. our cat is um Sophia Petrillo after Golden Girls. So it's kinda kinda the same thing. I that was not my choice. It's not the same thing. It's not, very different. <laughs> it's close close enough. So you've made a you've made two full features at this point. One of them bread and butter I want to talk about in a bit um actually let's just talk about bread and butter now because that's your first feature everybody's got fun first feature stories um how'd that come about um I graduated film school and I was and I was just like carrying my boss's poop from his house to the doctor's office like I was doing tasks that someone with a terminal degree should not that no one should be doing like who cares about elitist educational value like no one should be doing this for another human um and I realized well I went to film school I want to try to put my my actual money where my mouth is and I just gathered a few bullies around me to hold me accountable and um started polishing my feature script and and we somehow made it happen I mean it took you know it took years but um, we shot in 2013, finished in 2014, and were released in 2015. Nice. So I think the first time I came across you was that um, that article you wrote for Movie Maker. Um, it was really just about about transparency and the the need for transparency in indie film because there's there's absolutely zero even to this day. Like a couple years later, it's still it's still like pulling teeth from people. Um, so talk to me about the, at least that you're allowed to share, um, the, the financial results from, from bread and butter. Yeah. You know, I actually need to be a little bit more specific in my counting, but I think we're just about to be in the black. I'm not positive. Um, but at the time of that article, we had grossed $96,000, which was the number that the distributor okayed me sharing. And it's funny because everyone thought that that meant nets. And they thought that meant that that was the money that RLLC got. And it's like, no, that's the like gross amount of money that went to the film, which then was broken down into 30% to iTunes and 30% or 25% or whatever it is to the orchard. And, you know, it goes down and down and down. Um, So like, for some reason I was being, um, celebrated in very small circles, circles, circles of like two or three people as um, a successful case study. And it's because there's not really, like you're saying, these case studies or data or information out there that's sharing um, whether people are making money or not. So um, I've had, I haven't worked really hard to 
dis, dis, uh, dispel their myth because I want people to think of me as successful. Uh, but I can say that I've talked to a lot of filmmakers who've made nothing. I've talked, I've talked to a lot of filmmakers who um, have not recouped and I bring this up all the time and everyone's super shocked. And it's because we don't have anyone willing to share information. Yes. Why people are shocked that most filmmakers don't recoup their budget. Yeah. And in micro budget world, because I usually talk to micro budget filmmakers and they're like, well, I made it for a hundred K of course I'm going to recoup. And it's like, well, why, why do you feel that way? That's like, a big why assumption. Why do you presume that money is going to come to you? Yeah. It won't. I, most likely it won't, which is um, a really hard thing to say over and over again, but it's become true. Yeah. What do you think are the driving reasons behind why there's so, so little transparency? Is it just the, because we'd all be so damn depressed if we, if we knew the reality of it or I, uh, there has yeah. to be more, there has to be more. I think a part of it is a lack of understanding. You know, I worked for a distribution consultant, but I couldn't tell you what SBOD was. I didn't know the acronyms and I didn't know how to negotiate a contract and I didn't know um, how to talk the talk in distribution. And I think part of the lack of information that's out there is the lack of understanding of what actually is happening to your film. People don't know that a film is encoded before it goes on iTunes. People don't know that, um, you know, you know, residuals and the way residuals come into play with SAG after, I mean, like there's a lot of, uh, yeah. lack of lack of understanding and I think there's a fear to share any information because you might be pushed on that information to answer more questions that you don't have answers to yeah and I wonder part of me part of me wonders just if people feel like once they figure it out it becomes like their their competitive advantage maybe and they mm -hmm. don't they just don't want to share because I don't I don't mm -hmm. know man absolutely that I, that might be a good transition into um, into that article. I I think you co-wrote it with who is it? Rebecca Green. From, Rebecca Green. Well, Rebecca yeah. Green published it and um, helped me connect with some of those distributors. That's awesome. So for anybody who's listening to this who hasn't seen this, it's essentially I don't remember what the exact title is. It's like we talked to dozens of distributors and here's what That's they the want. Title. Yeah, yeah, in your movie or <laughs> something like that. Um, but essentially, you went out and through your connections, through Rebecca's connections, you you talked to as many distribution companies as you could possibly and you as you could possibly find. You asked them just like a really systematic set of questions, like what are like how many projects do you acquire every year? What are the rights that you take in your in your deals? What are the lengths or like the the lengths of your deals that you offer and things like that? And just came out with probably I don't know like. I'm still convinced that that's one of the best pieces of content I've seen just in this space ever. Thank um, you. and I think I put, put out some great stuff, but like, that's, mm -hmm. that's better. Um, so the first thing I'm, I'm curious to know is just, what did you learn from that whole exercise? Um, I think a lot of the answers were meaningless to be completely honest. Um, they were, there were a lot of distributors where I got to have conversations and really warm exchanges with certain people and they were honest and they, uh, explained how they worked and they were very human about it. And I, I would like specifically like to mention oscilloscope. I've had wonderful conversations with Aaron Katz of oscilloscope who seems to have this like fantastic open door at times to filmmakers and, um, really seems to care anyway. Um, Moving on. So I think a lot of the answers had to go through um, PR departments at their at their company. So what began as kind of like an interesting conversation halfway through a distributor would be like, oh, wait, where is this being published again? Is this an internal resource or is this an external resource? Is this just for Sundance alumni or is this for the public? And answers would start to change. Um, so that was uh upsetting um and i also think you know like these we interviewed 25 distributors and the only people that reached out afterwards were much smaller distributors that wanted to be wanted to be included on the list um but for the most part the distributors themselves didn't see any value in being um accessible 
to filmmakers across the board. Um, and they have all the power, so I can't blame them. But, uh, you know, it's just like reinforcing what we already know. It's just like we are powerless and frustrated and they have all the control. Yeah. Well, so and this is this has been a big theme um, already on this show and just in what I've been doing is there's and like you almost certainly know this, there is so much predatory behavior among distribution companies, especially on like the lower micro budget end, just because I think filmmakers are seeking validation and they've been told all along that if you get a deal, you're a success. And then, you know, they'll get like no money up front or like a thousand bucks or something and told on the back end, we'll, we'll make you whole eventually. It'll be great. And then they never see another penny. And I just hear that again. And I'm sure you hear it again and again and again, it just happens so much. So I'm, and like, that is, that's part of the reason why I am so cynical about the, the traditional distribution landscape is like, part of it is I come from marketing and entrepreneurship and I have some semblance of understanding how to reach audiences online and, and sort of work outside of that system. But I'm, I'm curious what your take on it is. Um, cause you, you, for bread and butter, you chose to work with the orchard who they're definitely one of the good apples. Um, um uh, fruit pie. Oh, Oh, I didn't even know. <laughs> Way to go. Way to go, Rob. I'm very proud of myself right now. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm, I guess, I don't know what the question was in there, but I, I think it comes down to something along the lines of um, what do you have to look for when when working in this world with traditional distributors? When do you say yes? When is it in your best interest to say yes? And when do you when do you walk away? Yeah, so I'm uh, almost finalizing the distribution plan for Speed of Life, my second feature right now. And so I'm in this and we received, you know, a few offers um, which is a lot of people receive a few offers. This is not me being like braggy in any way. This is, and I always call them the big busted vampire movie offers or big busted vampire movie sales agents. It's always, they always have like one movie with like an Elvira spinoff. Um, but like, I don't understand why. Uh, so in my experience right now, it's about the brand versus transparency versus uh, filmmaker reviews. So, and um, flexibility. So if like a really fabulous brand reach out to me, like something like Gunpowder in Sky or Neon or A24. And if they were like, we love your film, we have no advance um, and we want it, you know, for five years, all rights. Like I may even consider that, that deal because um, I want to work. I want my film to be with other quality films. I want the curation of that company to put forth my film to Netflix and Hulu because um, that's cool. The company that you're in is really important. Uh, but if it's a middle of the road distributor and they don't have a curatorial brand and they don't have any flexibility, like I can't retain certain rights or windows um, and they are highly reviewed by, you know, various clients that they've worked with over the past few years, then I can easily walk away. Um, I'm really interested in this company, Giant Pictures right now, and will most likely be working with them. And they're, they're letting me negotiate anything. Everything's on the table. I can retain whatever rights I want to retain. Um, I can change the duration of the contract. I can change the territories. Every, the whole thing is customization. And um, what's fantastic about them is they're not hiding behind like a $50,000 marketing cap. I'm going to be doing the marketing for the film. They're going to be advising. They respond to my emails. They're transparent. They're um, have a small slate and, um, they seem like good humans. So like those things are more important to me than the, uh, compromises you make for the phrase, I got a deal. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> We're being picked up. Like, what does that mean? That means nothing. Yeah. That's super, that strikes me as super rare. The, the ability to go in there and negotiate every little piece of, I love of the deal. That's killer. So are you 
are you negotiating all of this yourself or with a producer or do you, did you hire a sales agent or how are you, how are you going through that process? Uh, I love my producers, like love them. Um, but I know more about distribution than they do. And so I'm negotiating um, as an individual and I check in with them and I make sure they know what I'm doing. And they've been a part of all the conversations and they've been weighing in with their thoughts, of course. But like w- the value that they brought to development and production, I'm bringing to distribution. So it's me. Um, but the people at Giants and the people at various other companies that I've talked to, um, you know, like, it's not like I act like a suit. It's not like I play hardball. I just say, these are the things I want. If you can't do that, I'm going to self-distribute. Like there's no real risk for me. Um, and if they want the title, then they want the title and, uh, we come to an understanding. So. I think the, the subtext in that for me is that knowledge is power mm-hmm. that when you, when you know, not only everything that goes into a deal, like the various types of rights and territories and yada, 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 you know, it constitutes a good deal and a bad deal. And not only that, when you know the mechanics of self-distributing something yourself and reaching an audience yourself, like in many ways that puts the ball back in your court, because we were talking about how many of these distributors, like they, they've held the power for so long over filmmakers, but there, there is a very tangible way to take that back. And it's just learning how to do things. (laughs) The only, well, absolutely. But the only thing that I feel um, I'm prepared for are, uh, is merchandising and pitches to subscription VOD platforms. So like, I don't know anyone at Hulu. I don't know anyone at Netflix. I don't know anyone at iTunes. So I want whoever my distributor is to promote the film and say to the head of iTunes, you know, would you put Liz's film speed of life in new and noteworthy this week? Like I can't do that. And that's what I'm going to the distributor for. Um, but I've specifically am booking my own theatrical for this film. And I'm like really excited about like where I'm doing one night engagements, probably just on the West coast to places that I could drive to with my baby. And like, that's something that a distributor wouldn't do no one's gonna say hey Liz do you want a theatrical release for your film like I didn't play Sundance um so that's another thing where like I'm excited for certain parts of the distribution of this film to do myself so that's awesome that you're able to do that I want to talk about like the the nitty-gritty of putting on your own like mini theatrical run and and the process you're using to book theaters and how you're putting butts in the seats and all of that. We don't know about that. Like, I, I'm going to figure it all out to get the movie going. I don't know if anyone's going to show up. Um, but, uh, you know, like uh, at, at Sundance and as, outside of Sundance, I've been involved with a few people who um, are just about transparency, about activism and film, about women in film and marginalized voices. And some of those people are bookers and some of those people are exhibitors and some of those people are independent filmmakers. And we share information. So I'm getting lists of exhibitor contacts from a fellow filmmaker of mine, um, filmmaker friend of mine. Um, And then through festivals, I've met people who are programmers for festivals and also programmers for art houses. They can connect me to the art house theater. And so it's been this kind of makeshift, loose world of relationships that have caused me to think that I can do this. Yeah. And so are you, are you, um, essentially for each theater you're going to, and maybe you're not that far yet. Are you, are you paying them up front to rent out a screen for a night? Are you doing some sort of split on ticket sales with them? Um, how do you, how do you make that work? Um, I haven't gotten to the negotiation phases right now. I've only like targeted two theaters in my mind. And then I have like three more on the back burner that I'm going to go to after that. And my plan is like, um, is no upfront money or the least amount of upfront money that I can do. I work in nonprofit. Um, I just had a baby. Um, for me, it's more important to get the theatrical going than it is about, you know, per, ha, ex- maximizing the back end of everything. So I'm going to see. And also, I want to do a David Bowie cover band at every single theatrical engagement. So I need to free up a little bit of money to pay the band. So that's where I'm at right now is I'm, I'm thinking 
that that actually the theaters are going to make more of more from this than I will. But that's what I'm willing to negotiate in order to make it happen. How does the I I haven't seen a trailer or anything for what is it? Speed of Life? Is that, oh, yeah. The one? trailer's not out into the world. So I want it. Um, <laughs> how does how does the David Bowie cover band play into it? Well, the film is inspired by um, the inciting incident is essentially uh, David David Bowie's death. And then the film's spine is um, a tribute to David Bowie. It's like, we can't play his music and he doesn't appear, but we reference him a few times. So, uh, and then Speed of Life is a David Bowie song and it's a time travel movie. So the title that my producer, Josh Compton came up with is really appropriate. Um, but yeah, it's not like it's a David Bowie biopic and it's not like it's a movie where David Bowie's in every single scene, but I'm going to capitalize on my love of seeing a David Bowie cover band and like, (laughs) and I'm going to figure out these engagements mainly for myself at this point. Well, and just in terms of like rabid online fan bases and, and whatnot, like that strikes me as a very rich, um, like vein that you can sort of mine if like if you ever wanted to do the self-distribution or depending on what rights you keep your for yourself like there's people love them some david bowie (laughs) i mean he's a hero he's most wonderful and um we have an actress and dowd from handmaid's tale so what we've been kind of doing is like what's the concentric circle between this kind of dystopic sci-fi and david bowie um without it being, you know, it's like, we're not high, big budget black mirror, but what's the, like the cerebral romantic dramedy, David Bowie concentric circle. It's a very weird specific audience. So that's actually one of the other questions I had for you. Cause I th- was it you had Bobby Moynihan in the first feature you got Ann Dowd in number two. Yeah. How are you attracting some pretty big name talent? Like I, Ann Dowd is just so magnificent um I, I think i think it was the leftovers where she first caught my attention which is just all-time favorite but anyhow um <laughs> um i spend years developing the film and um the the budget is comes together before the casting does and that's how we do it once you have your full budget you can approach um talent what's difficult for me right now is I'm attached to a third feature and I have this like running like success of two films that I've been able to cast myself and attach name talent. It's very hard to do it right now because we don't have the full budget and um, we've just been going through personal connections, which I usually dissuade people from even trying. I say, go to the agents, go to the managers it's the fastest way to have accountability and deadlines and keep, and it's going to go through the agents and the managers anyway, at the end of the day. Um, so how did I attract them? Um, once we had the full budget, um, my fabulous entertainment lawyer writes an offer letter and we attach it with a script and a personal letter from me. And we do MFN. We do most favorite nations for payment of actors. So um, so I'm not, I'm not super familiar on that concept. Can you, can you go yeah. into that? It just means that every actor gets the same amount on, on the film. And, um, for me, that's important because, um, I think where you get into problems with negotiating and, and actually strangely enough, gender politics and everything like that is when you start, um, differentiating salaries between actors on set, um, so like once we, once we got Ann Dowd on board and she accepted our horrific low budget film offer, which she was so generous to do so. Um, and everyone else, you know, heard what we were offering and they were like, well, Ann took it. Yeah. They were all on board. Whereas if we were going to dole out an extra stipend for one person, I think that creates a lot of tension and problems, especially in a low budget shoot where you're like, working 12 days next to each other and there's um, very little separation between talent and crew and, and talent with each other. Yeah. And so do you, are you thinking about 
casting as you're writing the script in terms of like trying to get somebody or is it just no. you No. And I, I assume most of like you're, you're banking on the, the strength of the script, the strength of your, your, your character and like the letter you write to them when it comes to getting them to, to say yes to something like this. Cause I, I have to assume that most folks get, get offers like these, um, just day in and day out. I'm curious, what do you think makes somebody with a big name say yes to a project like this? Uh, well, this I'm not being self-deprecating when I say this. I don't think the script for my second feature was that great. Um, I, I really like certain scenes in it, and I'm very proud of like a, a lot of it. But there were a lot of flaws, and I noticed them when I was in the editing room. So I don't think it is the script. It might be the characters. So like Anne Dowd's character in Speed of Life is um, is not... Aunt Lydia, A, you know, it's, it's she's not um, terrifying. She's warm and, you know, Anne is known for playing Patty from Leftovers, Aunt Lydia from, you know, Handmaid's Tale and, and this, and the woman from Compliance, like those are her three top roles and those are really tough characters. And so this is a really warm uh, character for her to play and she's sexual and she's, um, you know, Anne is in her late fifties and this is a real woman. And you see a lot of those on screen, which is crazy. Um, so I think you start with, you know, um, the underserved characters for the underserved audiences. And that, I think that's the key. Um, I went to Bobby, well, I went to someone else um, for bread and butter before Bobby Moynihan. And Bobby Moynihan was like, I'm so glad. Like, it, I'm so glad it worked out the way it did. Bobby Moynihan's like a hero. He's so wonderful. Um, but I remember I was talking to another actor who we had attached before Bobby. And he was like, why did you think of me? And I was like, I think you're a good actor. And I, and I was watching your, you know, your show and I thought you were really wonderful. And he was like, well, usually I just get like, like literally last week I got offered a penis in a hot dog suit role or something like that. <laughs> like, like the characters, these, these actors are, are getting are, um, are stupid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you, if you, you're offering something, if you're offering yeah. like real, um, depth, even if the script's not perfect and even if it's low budget, you're still offering something. Interesting. Do you, have any sort of like internal resistance, like knowing that a script's not perfect, but then you go ahead anyway? No, but I should. Um, I'm foolhardy and maybe that's to my benefits, <laughs> um, but it's, it's not great for, it's probably not great for my reputation. I mean, I'm sure people will come and read the script and be like, mm, I don't think so. I've been rejected plenty of times, but you just hustle until you get the yes. Right. Um, so it's not good that I'm doing this and it'd be wonderful if people were putting more uh, substantive art into the world than, and I love my script and I love my film, but like, is it um, the grand illusion? No, it's not. So um, it, I want to encourage people to really think about their scripts before they submit them. But if you are living to make that movie and if that's, you know, what's keeping you up at night, then sometimes you just have to say, fuck it. Like I'm sending it in. I'm, I'm throw I'm sending the offer their way. I'm sending the script out. I'm making this come hell or high water. I love it. So <laughs> you've also had some success with crowdfunding. Um, I know you, I know you crowdfunded for bread and butter and I saw, uh, I think it was a seed and spark video for your new one, lady parts, which is, <laughs> which is a really fun video. Um, <laughs> So I guess, first off, just let me, let me hear your history with crowdfunding, um, just from like a broad perspective. Uh, crowdfunding with Bread and Butter raised about $36,000. And then um, I actually crowdfunded for Speed of Life, but I didn't think I could make more than 15. So I made about 16,000 with that one. And then Lady Parts, um, Devin, the producer actress, actually did the entire campaign um, on Seed and Spark for Lady Parts. And that one was about 16 
as well. So I've done Kickstarter scene spark. And then my job at Sundance is actually to consult. Part of my job is to consult on crowdfunding campaigns. So I gave all of my advice um, to Devin before she ran the campaign, but like she, you know, it was all her. I don't want to say that, um, that the success was mine in any way, but I've noticed that the principles of crowdfunding are very similar to the principles of, um, like, as you know, all too well, uh, marketing campaigns for mm-hmm. the release of content in, in any form. Yeah. So what is uh, all of your advice for <laughs> for running a... Because, I mean, I, like, I, I ran a Kickstarter back in, like, 2010 and, like, raised, like, 1700 bucks or something stupid like that. And I was like, it was for a short film. But... Yeah. And it seemed easy at the time. And then... Subsequently, over the years, I've tried numerous, not necessarily for my projects, but projects I've worked with, and it just is getting harder and harder and harder to crack that. You know, there's people are fatigued when there's like 15 Kickstarters in their news feeds every day and like your long lost nephew is hitting you up for (laughs) like whatever. Um, So I guess the I guess what I'm just curious about is like. How do you how do you stand out and get people to actually give a shit about your campaign when there's so many out there? Um, I believe in running a this is a weird phrase, but running a humble crowdfunding campaign. So my whole thing is all of the rewards need to be more valuable than the level you're setting them at. And they should, for the most part, be free to you, like don't cost you anything. So you're not losing money on the campaign other than time and energy. So my big thing is you thank people publicly and privately. The public thank you encourages the campaign and promotion, but the private thank you is the ones where you really, you know, from the bottom of your heart, you express gratitude. And this is from $1 donations too. This is for every single increment. And to talk about your campaign as if, uh, um, honestly, like you are worried about not making the goal. You are, you, this is an incredibly important thing to you. The stakes are so high, um, using, and you use first person pronouns and you, um, you know, it's about not expecting, not acting entitled and, and acting grateful the entire time. And it's exhausting. But to me, that's the way you run a crowdfunding campaign. And I don't even know if it's the key. I just think that's the way you should be fundraising. Because when you're taking someone's Chipotle lunch away from them, which is what I base all my accounting off of is the $9 Chipotle meal, um, then you should be grateful. You should be thankful that, that they're willing to believe in you for $1 or $9. Yeah. So you mentioned that most of your rewards should be something free or very low cost. Um, And that's a mistake that I have made and (laughs) getting getting to the end of the campaign and be like, oh, shit, we have to produce posters and DVDs now. And oh, no. Um, And, you know, like seven hundred dollars later and all of that stuff. Um, what are what are some of your favorite rewards that people actually like that are compelling that you know don't yeah. end up breaking your bank? Um, okay, so my favorite reward was a one dollar cheerleading one sorry one page cheerleading letter, and I think for fifteen dollars I wrote a one page single space letter about why I really like the person. I was just like, here are things I remember about you. Here are things that make me smile. Here are things. Um, that I appreciate appreciate about your character and the ways that I know you. Please yeah. read this letter when you're having a hard day. So I love doing that. Wait, so did do you when like strangers do that, do you have to like go Facebook stalk them to find <laughs> things that <laughs> So I would I mean it got a little not many people who are strangers gave to my campaign, but if they did, yeah, it got a little desperate. I would be like from the short letter you wrote me, I could tell you are a very kind individual. You know, yeah. like it's it's it was tough. Um, I always really like doing Spotify play, playlists. So like they cost nothing. You can make them secret because I think that adds value to the playlist a little bit. And then um, I did customized playlists, so someone would give me their three favorite songs, and I would say, "Well, that sounds like." 
you know, bubblegum pop. I'm going to come up with 10 bubblegum pop songs to give back to them. So I like things that are customized. I like things that are personal and, um, and I like, who doesn't love just like trolling on Spotify for an hour (laughs) for some great songs. I mean, that's kind of fun actually. It is. It's also an excellent way to procrastinate when you, is, <laughs> but not if you're fulfilling Kickstarter rewards, you're being productive. Oh, oh <laughs> yeah. yeah. Maybe that's the, maybe that's the secret to turning my like Spotify browsing into something that's not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just yeah. run like constant concurrent Kickstarter campaigns. Yeah. All right. So <laughs> yeah, you have a day job and that yeah. day is the creative distribution initiative. There we go. I said it right at Sundance. Yes. So first question is, what is that? <laughs> um, I have to say, and I don't mean to be vague, um, but I'm just not allowed to talk openly about certain things, but this department is evolving a little bit. So the answers I give right now will lo- most likely change in like a few months time. So I'm just going to answer what it is like on June 26, 2019. Um, So we're a department at Sundance that is devoted to being um, a resource for Sundance alumni mainly. So we um, are supposed to be distribution consultants for them. They're supposed to be able to come to us and we can um, advise them on how to do audience building or you know, if they're having trouble with their distributor, we can maybe offer some advice. We're not lawyers. We can't negotiate contracts, but we're supposed to be a resource. And then um, we started running this fellowship that we're currently on pause with, but we gave money to five different films to self-distribute so that we could um, publish. My teammate, Jess, writes the case studies publish their infirm their the rollout of their film into these beautiful case studies for everyone to read and learn from. And then what I've kind of um, included in my job description without really asking is um, is I try to write or do these very transparent filmmaker interviews that I publish on Sundance's medium page. And it's just like you essentially get promotion from Sundance for your film if you're willing to talk incredibly transparently about anything that has to do with marketing and distribution. Ooh. Yeah. I, I know I just I know I just shared one of those this week. I didn't realize there were I probably should have gone deeper, but I no, didn't realize there were more of them. At all. That's just yeah. something I've been doing. So like you did you share the Jason Charnick uh one about getting over? Yeah. Fabulous, right? And he just came to me and he was like um, let's talk. And I was like, would you be willing to talk on the record? And he was like, absolutely. And, um, I, it's never, the goal is never someone being like, I want more rentals on my iTunes account. But I do think when you're transparent and you use your film as an educational tool, um, people want to see what you are working with and what you're teaching, if that makes sense. Yeah. So I think people will, I will watch the content more if the filmmaker's more um, open. Yeah, absolutely. I kind of just want to get some, cause you, you are working with distributors on, on your two current features and who knows what's happening with the, with the new one yet. Um, but I'm curious, essentially what you would do if you took, the self-distribution route, knowing what you know from from your your work at Sundance and and so on, um, what do you think are the best options for micro-budget filmmakers who want to who want to self-distribute these days? Um, well, I mean, just to throw it in there, there are small distributors that are willing to be flexible. I think if you if you want to find a partner who can collaborate with you and advise with you which is kind of what I'm doing with, um, with speed of life. Um, but I would find, you know, the cheapest ab- aggregator you can find. So there's like, I don't, I think juice, I don't really know much about juice, but you have uh premier digitals quiver. You have, um, uh, go digital from distributor and you just look at how much they cost to, how much are subtitles? How much is submitting to iTunes? How much is a Hulu pitch? And because all aggregators to me, um, and I can say this because we're not exclusive with our with our digital partner right now, um, all aggregators to me are 
pretty much the same. So just save the most amount of money you can. Um, so you would want to work with an aggregator for your digital deals. And then I would look at something like a tug theatrical and then um, go on like Amazon Prime for SVOD using Amazon Video Direct. And then um, I would build up your audience with social media and with an email marketing campaign. I mean, it's just like little pockets of services and activity, but that's what a distributor does. They put your film on platforms and then they market it. But, but this way, at least you can um, have a better relationship with your audience, which again, you know all so well, because I know you are like news, Mr. Newsletter. So you know very, very all of this about engagement and loyalty and um, analytics and all the things in email marketing. Yeah. I'm curious, do you ever advise people on essentially crafting a film with an audience in mind beforehand? Because like one of the the big mistakes that I see is people will spend like years and years on a project. It'll be their baby. Um, All through that process, there's literally zero consideration of who this is for. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And then you, you get to the finish line, maybe submit to a few festivals and then you're like, Oh shit, there's literally no one online who wants this. There's there's no way to reach the people who this film is perfect for. Um so I'm curious if you just have thoughts on on making films that at least some segment of the population, even if it's a small segment cuz like obviously in the micro budget realm, you you can afford to to go after smaller niches that you you really can't with big budget media. Um so I'm, I'm, I guess I'm just curious um, if you had any just advice or thoughts around that that realm of making something that people will give a shit about. Um, short answer is no, because I think that as artists, we only have certain ideas that kind of percolate and like push us to the degree of us going through the pain and trauma and horror of making the film itself. So I wouldn't ever want to be like, don't tell that story, even if you have no audience. Like I would never want to presume to, to censor people in that way. But I do think genre is important still. You know, you think about successful films in the marketplace. Well, it's films with cast, um, you know, that are box office draws or digital draws. And then it's um, genre films or it's niche documentaries or it's food documentaries or extreme sports documentaries like there's little um bright spots still constantly so what I would advise people to do is if you have an idea that's a genre idea to lean into the genre and lean into that audience but I'm actually okay with filmmakers making films um just for themselves I am, because if it's micro budget and you're not going into debt, please do not go into debt. Um, You know, then you have the emotional catharsis of making the film. But um, as long as you don't have the expectation that you're going to make a ton of money. Yeah. Well, I don't know if this is probably not true for everybody, but I also think there's a case to be made that when you make something that you would want to see yourself, it almost in every case will be more appealing to, to some segment of the population of people who are like you in in whatever way who share some, you're, you're part of the same identity groups, the same, like you share the same values, um, whatever it happens to be like, there's, there's something just magical about that process of, of making something that like, like, even if you don't come at it with, with that intention of I'm making something that I like, because I know it'll be, it'll, it'll, I don't know, even know what I'm getting at right now. I feel like I'm just kind of rambling, but there, there is a, I, I just think there's a business case to be made around making something that, that comes from your, your own identity and your own sense of what you want to see in the world, because that almost always in my experience aligns with some segment of the of the market of people who who watch content or or who are searching for media so um I completely agree and I I look back on the things that I was 
really stubborn about with my first film. And those are the things that were, that set it apart. So like Chris, Christine Weatherup is the one who connected us. Um, and I always say this, I always like to couch my comments because Christine is like, a, you know, an Amazon beauty. She is gorgeous. She is like, you know, there's nothing unattractive about her at all. Um, but I was looking for kind of like, um, a dowdy, <laughs> mousy little girl to play this role in Bread and Butter, and I couldn't find her. But the thing that I was um, really stubborn about was someone who wasn't a size zero. And um, and I, you know, and again, like this is I don't. It's such dangerous waters to travel when I talk about this because I don't want to be mean to people who are size zero. I just wanted a different body on screen than I was used to seeing, and. Those are the comments I get um, when people see the film or they'll be like, it's a romantic comedy, but it's more realistic than a romantic comedy that I've ever seen. And that those are the things that I was adamant about. I didn't want, you know, the relationships to feel false or fake or plastic. And, and so, yes, I was making those elements for me. And I think those were the successful elements. Um, I think a lot of people, and there's been a resurgence of this with things like girls and with like mumblecore and with like um, flea bag. I don't know, just catastrophe. But people undervalue reality so much um, until recently, and now now it's being commodified. And people, you know, when you're making a film, don't discount the your your voice. This is so cheesy. I'm so sorry, Rob. Um, <laughs> But I think it's important, like little minor things where you have someone talking about like a booger in a film. Like, why aren't we talking about boogers? I don't know. Um, so like use use the banal reality around you um, in your in your film. And I think then you'll set yourself apart. I love that. And just be be stubborn about what you want. And just and like you that's that's sort of the beauty of working in the micro budget realm is you you're afforded that freedom. You can make those choices and not have pushback from like 15 levels of EPs and investors and all like all the crap. Um, and they don't know. Like they really, I was talking to um, a filmmaker friend of mine yesterday and we were like, um, he was dissuaded from using a 7D in his first feature because his producer was like, oh, don't do that. It'll devalue the whole film. And that producer didn't know that they didn't know. Like people just, they tell you things because they heard them at cocktail parties and like, there is no orthodox ever. So. Yeah. And what was it? The, what was that? There's a film that was, I think it was one of the first ones shot on a 5d that did like millions of dollars on iTunes. What was it? This something, something for lovers, something, I don't remember what it was. Um, I know you have to go in a little bit, um, but I'm curious next, um, just what is, what's next for you? So I know you're, I know you're doing the festival circuit right now with, um, with the Bowie thing. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm so excited to, I, I just love the idea of like creating these these additional experiences around a film beyond just like going to a theater and watching it, but like giving, giving people something that they cannot get at, at home, you know? Um, Oh yeah. And just, I've only done it once at Atlanta film festival, but when the lead singer mentioned the name of my film in the David Bowie song, I was just like, it's one of the highlights of my life. Like I was just like, we love Bowie. We like, we're here for this movie that I made like, Oh, I mean, pick something that you enjoy, right? To add to the experience. So you've got that going on. Um, (laughs) Yeah. What else, what else is in your future? There's a movie that I really, uh, I base a lot of my movies or my scripts off of past relationships. And I wrote this script about my current relationship and I really want to get that one off the ground. And I'm thinking of doing it nights and weekends in the fall and the winter, uh, because I was thinking I was going to act in it and my partner was going to act in it and our baby and our dog are going to be in it too. So that's, that's percolating right now. The script isn't ready and not in a foolhardy, I could submit it and still do it kind of way. Like it's really not ready. Um, so there's that. And then I'm really hoping we make lady parts. Um, we're, we have a little bit of seed money, but we're looking for the rest of the budget and like every filmmaker in the world, we're just hustling and trying to make it happen. So um, 
those are the things. And then I was thinking maybe of writing um, some spec scripts and actually trying to be a writer. I don't know. That's my newest thing right now is like, it's, I don't know if I can make micro budget features forever. So I'd like the idea of still telling stories while um, raising our, our little kid. Love it. Love <laughs> it. I'm really curious, like what's next for the creative distribution initiative, but it sounds like there's, it's, well, it's under lock and key. Yeah, uh, well, I, wish I, could, I, yeah. I have a hard time not saying things. So I'm just going to say nothing. <laughs> okay. Um, well, one of the questions that I didn't ask around that was that like, if, if people are interested in the services that you guys, or they feel like they need the services that you provide, how can they get involved given that it's still the services that you provide in a few months? I don't know. Um, I would say I've started consulting and um, even if you can't afford me and I haven't figured out my rates, so I don't know if you could afford me or not afford me just reach out. I'm very happy to answer questions. I have phone calls every single day with filmmakers, just like giving them free advice. Um, so like, regardless of what's happening over here at Sundance, I individually always want to be a resource. Um, so Liz.Manichel at gmail.com. I'm here. Love it. Yeah. Um, so one question that I have been wrapping up all these interviews with is sort of a, a just a big heady existential question um okay. yeah right and it's it's just what is your hope for the future of indie film um i mean of course i want us to be properly valued as creators i want you know i know that we all still each other's Netflix passwords. And I know none of us really wants to pay for content, even though we're all filmmakers and we're still not, you know, I want some sort of radical shift in the way um, we view art and supportive filmmakers. But I think like, that's my rational right brain answer. But I think the, the bleeding heart hippie in me also is just, I want more people to make their movies because I think I was really unhappy before I made my first feature. And then once I got that done and felt that sense of accomplishment, um, I felt like my life really changed. And I would love other filmmakers who are frustrated to have the same feeling of um, satisfaction that I do. So two answers. Yeah. No, I love it. Um, so where can people find your your various films, um, your stuff with Sundance and all of the, all of the fun things that you do online. Where can people go? Um, Twitter is where I talk about being a mom at Liz Manichelle. Um, email is where I'm most happy. Liz.manichelle.gmail.com. I have a website, lizmanichelle.com. Um, and Sundance, um, you know, sundance.org slash, I think it's like creative distribution, but um, I can always send you guys links to, that interview that you talked about where we talked to distributors, we have a newsletter in our department. So we have lots of resources for you. Sweet. Is there a, is there anything else that you're just like dying to tell this audience of like hungry entrepreneurial micro budget filmmakers? That was so many things, but. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I, I really, I feel like I've said so much. Uh, I, I mean, run an email list. That's what I would like to say, you know, like, listen, listen to Rob and run an email list and own your audience and communicate with them regularly. That's it right there, man. Well, sweet. Thank you so much, Liz. I can't even tell you how much I appreciate you uh, taking the time. This is fun. uh, Didn't want to dance. Right. Yeah. I made a great, I made a great apple pun. So my day is, (laughs) my day is done. And uh, yeah. Work is done here. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening. For the links and resources mentioned in this interview, as well as the full archive of Filmmaker Freedom episodes, just head over to filmfreedomshow.com. And while you're there, feel free to browse around the Filmmaker Freedom website 
and check out some of the other rad content, including the weekly newsletter. Every Sunday morning, I send out a variety of the most useful, inspiring, thought-provoking stories I've come across that week, as well as some other cool stuff. It'll help you build your skills, master your psychology, and keep up with this ever-changing business. So if you're ready for an email that you'll actually look forward to each week, just head over to filmfreedomshow.com newsletter. Also, if the ideas in this show resonate with you, you're a great candidate for Freedom Fighters, which is my private community just for entrepreneurial indie filmmakers. It's totally free to join, but there is an application process to get in. So if you're interested in surrounding yourself with a group of like-minded entrepreneurial filmmakers who will push you to succeed and help you grow, just go to filmfreedomshow.com community. And lastly, I'd just like to give one more shout out to my friends over at Music Vine for sponsoring this show. The groovy intro and outro music came straight from their library, of course, and there is loads more where that came from. So if you're a discerning filmmaker who needs quality music, just go to musicvine.com and use the code FILMFREEDOM for 25% off your next order. Once again, thank you for listening. I really appreciate it. And I will see you in the next episode of Filmmaker Freedom. Peace. Peace.